I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. On this episode of Systemic, we talk with award-winning journalist Ernest Owens about his journey as a black queer man, his work to help reform queer communities in Philadelphia, and the work we should all be doing to help empower marginalized groups in the fight against white supremacist ideology. So um, I guess where I want to begin is um, in reading through some of the articles you sent, you said that you grew up in Houston, which to most people is a pretty large city, but yes. you grew up in the black Christian South, which is very different. Pentecostal Yeah, Pentecostal South. So could you yeah. talk about that and sort of what that experience was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me growing up, um, you know, in the South and also um, coming from a Pentecostal upbringing, um, you know, that was largely from the elders that I was around, um, you know, pretty much, you know, this was a God-fearing environment. Um, you know, my, my, my parents were um, progressive in a sense, but you know, very much so the, our family, our larger extension of our family were, uh, very much so God fearing people. And, um, their beliefs was that, you know, faith is what led them. Mm -hmm. Um, Faith became before politics. Um, they made decisions based on, um, their belief in God alone and everything came after that. Um, they voted, right. Mm -hmm. Um, they didn't vote conservative, (laughs) but, (laughs) They, you know, definitely um, always had a difference of agree agreement on other aspects within um, the, the place. And I think we have to remember that the Democratic Party did not differ with Republicans on, you know, social issues when it came to faith back then. It was an issue around economics, you know, mm-hmm. social services and things of that nature. But there wasn't um, much fighting um, too much around other issues. I mean, abortion was still debatable. Gay marriage was something they kind of all supported. You know, they weren't in favor of, um, you know, Democrats kind of was like, oh, civil unions, maybe stem cell research, you know, abortion. And, eh. you know, it was, there was, there was a lot of, of, of universal understanding on these, you know, social norms based on morality. Mm-hmm. They really differed on the conversations around, um, economic um, support, like should the government be giving people welfare and, and things of that nature? Now, you know, we are in a society where because of the progress of the Obama administration on social issues, Democrats are split more, morally, politically, financially. I mean, they just don't agree on anything at this point. But it wasn't <laughs> like that when I was growing up. Like, okay. You know, if you think about it, Obama, when he was, I mean, I'm 29 now, I'll be 30 in October, but Obama didn't, um, you know, support gay marriage outright until his presidency. 
Right. Very we true. Clinton in the early, you know, 2000s, late 90s, you know, you got to remember it was Bill Clinton who did, who really pushed don't ask, don't tell the Defense of Marriage Act, you know, those type of things. You know, it wasn't it wasn't where we are now. And so taking that context in mind, growing up, you know, the idea of gay marriage was just like a no versus mm-hmm. now I'm about to get married to my, you know, fiance who I met in college and you know, my family's all going. It's we're, we're just in a different time now. Um, you said you met your fiance in college and congratulations on getting married. Thank um, you. But what was it like then going to college and sort of you're no longer in the South where you sort of have to repress the queer side of you and you're allowed to sort of be out and liberated and free, but now you're black in a queer community. Yeah, when I first came to college here, being independent, and you know, being on my own, I really was fearless um, mm-hmm. because I didn't. When I came to Philadelphia, I didn't know anyone. Um, I also had a confidence, right? At this point, like I was, I made it to college. I was the class president, valedictorian in my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I made it out in a way where I felt entitled, um, you know, humbly speaking, but I felt entitled to live the life I wanted to live at that point um, because all of the initial fears I had growing up about being taken off track, getting mm-hmm. distracted, being confused, you know, getting caught up. You know, that was the the rhetoric that I was hearing, not from let's say my parents, but just, you know, teachers and others around me. Like when they spoke of LGBTQI people, it was often we were, you know, delirious. We were, you know, reckless. We were, you know, gonna fall down the we was going down a troubled path. Mm-hmm. It was always a negative connotation to being queer. And so as someone who knew for most of my life who I was and knew, I knew very early that I was gay. I knew I was different in that way. Um, I just suppressed it publicly. I wasn't out. I was out in high school to my friends. Um, people, people at high school knew, but I wasn't out to my family yet. I wasn't out to, you know, anyone outside of my social bubble per se. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, for example, I went to prom with the girl. The girl knew I was gay. We were friends. But, of course, that wasn't disclosed to my family or to people outside of the sphere, you know. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was very interesting. Um, you know, and it was those type of things where people knew. Some people talked about it. Others just didn't even discuss it at all. You know, I wasn't in that space where I could be like, I got a crush on someone or I'm dating someone. Like I had experiences in college, I mean, high school where I dated and things, but, you know, I didn't feel comfortable sharing that out loud. A lot of those situations were very private. Um, My close friends knew, but, you know, it wasn't this open, safe space. You know, this is back in 2009, you know, 2000 and, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, when I was in my junior, senior year, Um, I graduated in 2010 from high school. You know, it was in a different world. To think of it now, a decade later, I'm kind of like, wow, mm-hmm. it was it was so like things like it was just so different. But I was very much so young. And so my focus was just really on my academics and just really getting out, being an adult. When I came to Philadelphia, I really felt like, you know, everything, you know, no holds barred. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, OK, I can go out. I can I feel like I can strike this balance of having a social life. Um, being out, being a student, all of those things. I felt like I was mature enough to balance those things. And so when I went to Penn, you know, I went out, I, you know, 
I was in the neighborhood, um, which was like, you know, our social setting, you know, cities have like Chicago has Boys Town, New York has The Village, LA has West Hollywood mm-hmm. and LA, um, <laughs> has Montrose, you know, and, and, and a lot of major cities have their own, like, I guess, game oasis. Right. And that was that for me. Um, so, you know, I used to go out when I was younger, there was like college night at some of these clubs, so it would be 18 and up. So I was 18 and I could go out and, you know, things like that. And I was able to differentiate my time at Penn. Like I was out at Penn, but my dating life and, 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 you know, you know, dating and situations like that, I was able to, you know, segregate. Like, so when I went to college, I was a college student. I was out, but, you know, my dating life and stuff wasn't in, in, engrossed on campus. It was pretty much out of campus. Okay. Okay. And then, of course, the odd thing is that once I'm getting ready to get out the door, I finally meet someone I really, really liked who was at Penn. And we started talking. That man becomes my fiance seven years later. So it was interesting to see that navigation. But also, too, let me make sure I'm clear about this, is that at a school that was an Ivy League school that was very arguably liberal arts and progressive, there was massive homophobia. Um, there was lots of classism. Of course, there was racism. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in organizations, even even trying to be a part of Black student organizations, where I was told very early, oh, you know, you would have gotten that position if you weren't so out. And I was like, what do you mean if I wasn't gay? Because there was just that social stigma. Because as much as these very rich, quote unquote, liberal, um, you know, people at these institutions like to project, they are very self-conscious about image. Okay. So coming to Penn in 2010, 2011, you know, people like to act like they don't care, but being around someone that was openly gay at that time, and even somewhat now, but we're seeing it change in places like hip hop and, and rock and other places. But the idea of being around someone that's gay made people think that, you could be, and ooh, to be perceived as gay is such a bad thing. And so there was a lot of that type of homophobia and self-segregation that was taking place. Mm-hmm. Even within communities of color, it was happening. Um, and so I felt a lot of that where it was it was difficult at times to have straight friends um, you know, on campus because a lot of them, even if they liked my swag and thought it was cool, was so caught up in Everything was about getting a job. Everybody wanted to be in Wall Street. Everybody wanted to be somewhere. And anything that could, they thought, deter them from getting that money or getting that job, they were very much adamant on um, protecting. So some people didn't hang out with me because they was like, I don't want people to think I'm gay, which is stupid, right? <laughs> now it's stupid. But that back then, people really thought that was a thing. And they were, people were young, impressionable, um, ignorant. You know, and I experienced a lot of that um, when I was in college. And and what I was going to say, could you could you talk about within sort of the black community as well? Um, a that's sort of mind boggling for me to hear in that. So I'm turning, so I'm 42, turning 43 next year, mm-hmm. and to hear you say that in the late 2008, 2009, that there was these stigmatisms still there is almost baffling to me because that's exactly as someone who's straight, but like who had gay friends in high school and in college and sort of what they went through, it's baffling to think that I graduated in 97 and we were dealing with those things. And in 2008, 
that's still the feeling you have as someone who's in high school going into college. And so for that, that on one hand is just sort of baffling to think that in that gap of time, we really haven't come as far as we project to the outside world. Um, you know, but on top of that, can you talk about, so everyone's about getting the bag and getting the job and sort of moving on and appearance is everything. How did it feel then being black and not really sort of being able to be fully yourself though in a black community because you were gay and folks just didn't want to be around you? Um, I guess for me, I, I, it wasn't like this was a new phenomenon for me in college. It was Mm -hmm. something that I've, you know, I had dealt with a little bit in high school all my life. Um, and in some ways still am, but I've realized that status changes that even, even though I don't like to say that it's true. Okay. Um, because I, you know, have this level of education. I'm in a space where I'm afforded to be around a better, more intellectual group of people that don't see it as an issue. Mm-hmm. Like my education has afforded me privilege in certain ways where I'm in in spaces that aren't super homophobic, that mm-hmm. I have the option to, you know, have a network that isn't as problematic as some of some other folks that I know growing up and the role of education and having degrees, how that shapes those experiences. It's sad. It's true, but it's sad. It's an, it's an uncomfortable and unfortunate truth that in certain ways I haven't been fully protected. Like it doesn't save you from homophobia, (laughs) but I have been afforded certain networks and social circles where these people are more educated and well-versed on these topics Mm -hmm. where they're not doing these types of things. And I'm not saying that going into the hood, the, the hood is more homophobic than the suburbs. I'm not trying to say that either because that's not necessarily the case. Right. But I think the ability to, carve out networks, you you know, there is privilege in that, okay. that isn't given up front. And it's, and it's also because of resources too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you got certain colleges and companies and places that are investing in LGBTQ centers and, and quote unquote safe spaces that a lot of our kids and, and people like myself growing up didn't have centers or programming or books or didn't try to push or create an environment of that kind of education. I mean, mm-hmm. acceptance is something that can be found places. I found acceptance in my public school of a thousand kids in my graduating class that was majority black and brown. Mm-hmm. Some of the most respectful people um, and biggest, I guess, allies and comrades I had that supported and defended me and fought for me came from those backgrounds. But that being said, there is a lot of resources that don't go, I think, are invested in communities to try to, you know, bridge that gap more to inform. And I don't think it's any different from the black community. I know there's always this this, this narrative that goes out in the media and the press that, oh, the homo the black community is more homophobic than than and yada yada yada. That's not true. I think what we have to understand is that homophobia in America is the byproduct of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the way that masculinity is defined in America is by white people and by, and, and it's also been treated. So like the way that black men see themselves or define their status as a boss or wealthy or rich comes from the same problematic capitalism and chattel mentality that has been passed on to us through slavery. A hundred percent. We don't, we don't, um, 
we we see a lot of these ideas about who's a boss and ownership and and, and Matt and the way we talk about masculinity um in this type of capitalistic society a lot of that has been passed on through that now the aspects of us understanding tribe and community and child wearing some of that came through tribal experiences that we know mm-hmm. our best traits are not from white people <laughs> our, our best traits and aspects of how we understand family and identity and protecting our family is not rooted in slavery exactly but the aspects of how we look at upward mobility how we look at this idea of the american dream that's not us mm-hmm. that's not who we are the materialism the way that we define masculinity and, and and how we dress and all of that that level of homophobia was indoctrinated through us through policy when you when people say things like you know black people are more homophobic than white people i ask people First of all, homophobia is is more than just an opinion or a viewpoint. It's an institution. Mm-hmm, Who mm-hmm. put these laws in place that forbid same-sex marriage? Who made, you know, us look at homosexuality as a mental disorder? Who created those policies? Who pushed those bathroom bills? Who were the ones who drove these types of ideals in this country those were white male legislators mm-hmm. and as black people we have been bastardized and forced to follow the law even when the law itself is pushing our oppression mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i will never co-sign narratives that will say that black men are more homophobic or violent to us um and and just leave it there mm-hmm. right because that's the same conversation like black on black crime, right? Right. It's the same pathology. I will argue that what's happened to us as a community is that we have to divorce ourselves of white supremacy in all aspects of our life, in the way that we treat women, in the way that we talk about our own need for success, the way that we view law enforcement, the way that we view um, politics. And the way that we view sexual identity and gender expression, like all of that needs to be evaluated. And we need to be using a critical race theory um, and a, a racial lens to understand that these things that we're doing isn't just who we are. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I visited high schools and I would ask young black men specifically, you know, why are you saying that? Where did that come from? And they would say, um... <laughs> what, 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 uh, well, my dad said it. And where did your dad get that from? We didn't make up these language. We didn't make up the, the F word. We didn't mm-hmm. make up these, these slurs. These were slurs that we heard white men use. These are slurs that were put in books and texture. We are mimicking white men. There was a saying that someone said where they said that black men were the white men of the community, which was extreme. And people was really tearing it apart. And I think what people have to understand is that it wasn't, I, I think the sentiment was that there are traits that white men have done to us mm-hmm. that we're seeing other black men perpetuate as a mode of success. I agree. I agree. And that's something that I, I want to say that I love black people as a black person. <laughs> there are many black queer people in our community, rightfully so, that hold a lot of resentment towards other people in their community because they feel like what's happening to them 
is a byproduct of the community. And because I've gotten awakened and understand race, I've learned to understand that my community is not doing this by choice, but they're being bastardized and brainwashed to do this by the greater force that is white supremacy. And if I can educate more, and if all of us can educate each other, right? Because it can't just be me, but if we can all educate each other on white supremacy and how it's in, 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 in is poisoning our community, mm-hmm. then I believe that we will defeat homophobia and other aspects too once we realize that all of this is connected to white supremacy, not just the colorism, not just the self-hate. The self-hate is a byproduct of that. Right. I agree. And and I want to go down that line of the idea that of white supremacy is sort of the the, the real overall uh, virus here. You talked about one of your articles that a lot of the movements that are happening in the queer community and even the black community, queer community are being led by white cisgendered males and that that's where things are sort of going off the rail is that you have all a lot of progressive individuals who are like yes we're going to help we're going to do these things we're going to this money at this but they're not actually helping the cause in the long run could you speak to that yeah i think the reality is that you can't put them you can't put money on this situation Mm -hmm. i mean we need to invest um but we need to do more Mm -hmm. you know and we're not doing that and what do you think if it's not money and if it's not being led by the right folks, what do you think that for for the black queer community, what is needed to help sort of move people forward and build that solidarity? Well, one thing we have to be clear is, is that mm-hmm. the problem can't be the solution. Right. And that's something that we're missing out on is that the problem can't be the solution. The The problem, white people... As a, as a group, you know, they have to work on themselves. Mm-hmm. They need to, I mean, pay re- we need to pay reparations, right? We need reparations. They need to pay reparations. There needs to be an investment in paying their part and doing their dues and stepping back. Okay. That's one part of the solution. But the other part of the solution is, is that we as Black people have to envision a world, which is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do this, but envision a world where we are in power, okay, for ourselves. Like, what does it? And we can. And it, it's it's such a very that's such a very meta meta thing, and I so meta meta. But like, in a sense of we can do some of that in our own lives today, and we can structurally do this for generations to come. What I'm looking at is how do we decolonize our minds, actively pushing against this. Right now, we're in a white-dominated sphere that mm-hmm. is chipping away. Mm-hmm. Slowly, but it is chipping, right? We look at these new census data that shows that for the first time in the census, white people are declining in growth, in population growth. We're seeing black and brown people, but specifically Asians and Latinx people, um, are increasing in numbers. Mm-hmm. The browning and tanning of America is happening. We're at that point. The sad part is, is that the dis- the economic disparity is not moving enough, right? It's not declining. So we might get into an apartheid situation where there is a majority of black and brown people that live in America, but right. the wealth is going to be largely by aristocratic society of white people. Because white people have always justified their their money and their, and their justification, their stuff, um, based on that. Mm-hmm. They justified, we're the majority, 
So, of course, we got the majority. And we know that that was never true because <laughs> the per capita of resource allocation never matched population size to begin with. It was just white supremacy and racism. Mm -hmm. But what we're about to see is a declining of race and everything else. A declining of race in what way? Well, I mean, a declining of seeing that people, the, the conversations about racism has gone over the top. Mm -hmm. And that there's a sense that we can't use well, well, several things. One is that we can't we can't no longer claim that population size justifies the allocation of resources based on race. Okay, I see what because you're saying. Yeah. what we're going to see very soon is that white people are going to be the minority, but they're going to still hold the wealth. Mm -hmm. And so you can't justify the lack of resources going to communities of color based on population, even though we know that's BS. We we know. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We know it's not. And that's the problem. Gotcha. That's the problem. And we need to we need to do more to, to change that. You know what I'm saying? And and that's what we're, we're, we're not seeing here. OK. Yeah. Uh, and so going down that line, um, actually, I want to flip real quick. I want to go talking about I want to talk about pride, I guess, and in the queer community and its origins being in black and brown people sort of standing up and, and leading that charge early on. But then also going back to what you said about sort of the commodification of black bodies and that mm -hmm. we, in the, in the queer community, the, the push for pride. And a lot of times, even when we talk about voting, right? The big thing you're going to do when you need to get out the vote is you're going to go to the black and brown community. You're going to go to the queer community and you're going to push them towards these progressives and use them in a way that's really commodifying them. But then when talks of reparations, when talks of, of uh, income equality, when talks of how do we reallocate sources come around, minority communities are left out of what ends up happening, even though those are the specific communities you relied on for progress and to get you there. How do we work to level that playing field out? I think one thing is that what we have to acknowledge is that sexual orientation and gender identity, right? Mm -hmm. The intersectionality of identity. When we're talking about Black queer people, we're talking about folks. Black queer people are still Black people. Right, right. And I think sometimes people forget that. Like, at the end of the day, I'm still a Black man. Mm -hmm. The things that happen to me and society, when I'm judged racially, that impacts me. Mm -hmm. And all I'm saying is that in the community, especially in the black community, let's 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 acknowledge that regardless of our sexual orientation, gender identity, whether it's a black man, a black woman, or whatever, if we black, we should all have each other's back. Right, right. That's really the first thing I want people to understand. I'm not saying that everybody gotta be you know, have to be in agreement of every aspect of every person's life because it don't take all of that. I don't have to agree with every aspect of your personal business mm -hmm. in order for me to fight for you. I mean, I as a black man have been on, as a black queer man, has been on the front lines and have defended black folks under the name of Black Lives Matter when stories would come out later and we would find out that that black person who got shot by the police state may have said some homophobic things or had homophobic views. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, yes, those ideas are violent. And it is sad. And we should have worked to educate that person. Not queer people, but straight people should have, who's in this work, should have worked to educate that person to get that person on the right track. However, 
Mm -hmm. What I'm not going to do is think that that person's life didn't matter because of that thing. Right. Right, I remember people were debating about Sandra Bland and, you know, Sandra Bland had some viewpoints that were homophobic. Sandra Bland's whole as a whole person, we have to look at her as a whole person Mm -hmm. and recognize, yes, in this department, she was wrong. But this is a black woman who did not deserve to die. Right. And we have to be able as black people. I'm asking if I'm holding that nuance for people who have a difference of opinion. In in many ways, it's a problem and it should be addressed. We need to be able to understand that just because you may not understand my sexual preference or whatever my orientation is, that should not stop you from being at the forefront of fighting for me. Right. We we gotta stop that. I mean, even black Christians and black Muslims, I, I hear people say, oh, well, that person's black and Muslim. I don't believe. You don't have to have the same faith or creed for another black person for them to deserve to live. Mm-hmm. And we got to stop creating those types of wedges because essentially that's what white supremacy do to us already. They right. separate us based on class status, based on sexual orientation, based on we can't do that to ourselves. We have to that's a that's a very white supremacist mentality. We we can't pick up that type of oppressive behavior within our own community. And so your argument is then that we need to be black first and stand up for black and then whatever else falls behind that, we'll deal with that later. But if we're defending black, it's black queer, it's black trans, it's black man, it's black woman, it's black Muslim, it's black whoever, we are defending black and standing up for black. And black queer people's been doing that. When you look at Black Lives Matter, the founders, the co-founders, many of them were queer Mm -hmm. that founded Black Lives Matter. You look at Bayard Rustin, you look at James Baldwin, Mm -hmm. these individuals had their own experiences and their own ideas of, and they were fighting for LGBTQ issues. Barrel Rustin is a great civil rights leader. He fought for LGBTQ issues and black issues and intersection them simultaneously. Never missed the beat. Right. I would love to see members in our community more because there are, there are some people doing that work. I, mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people that say they're not out there, but we need to, 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 to demystify this narrative, right? That, mm-hmm. that there is somehow this inability for us to come together. You know, intersectionality was a term that was coined by uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, mm-hmm. who understood it for Black women, but understood it on various aspects of identity mm-hmm. when it pertains to Black people holding multitudes of experience of oppression. Right. And that we have to understand those layers and those levels and not conflate. So people will tell me things like, oh, you're gay, so you got rights. I'm sorry, I'm confused. First of all, <laughs> that's not how that goes down. Second of all, you think that these white people, these white gay men, look at me as their equal? You think that these white gay people in the community are not racist? You think that they don't discriminate? My work, a body of my work, focused on racism in the LGBTQ community. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, five years ago, um, you know, I did some heavy reporting on racial discrimination in the neighborhood. The place that I went to as a young black gay man that was trying to do my thing. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting that I look at all of the stuff that's going on and I see all of this, 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 you know, it's a place of like, yeah, I'm feeling free in one sense, but then I'm being reminded in another, right? Right. Almost the same way when I was in a certain community where 
one aspect of myself was embraced, but there was one I had to suppress. And when I was going to these Gabriel bars and these nightclubs and things, you know, I was getting the discrimination. I was getting patted down a certain way. I was getting looked at a certain way. Um, I was being asked to show my ID multiple times. Um, I was being told that the, 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 they were at high capacity when I saw white boys consistently getting put in. Gotcha. Um, and then even going in the clubs, being fetishized in a way, you know, by some of these older white men who would, you know, think they can go up and slap my butt or talk to me a certain kind of way. Um, it was it was very toxic at times. Mm-hmm. And so as somebody who, um, you know, eventually got out of college, started doing journalism and writing and do my work and do my thing, I started to say, you know what, this issue, is anyone going to talk about this? And I wrote some op-eds and, and started doing some investigative journalism and really began to show how these clubs had racist dress code policies. I remember one of the bars were like, no Timberland boots in Philly. <laughs> no Timberland boots in Philly. Okay. Right. No Adidas track pants. That specific? That specific. Wow. Okay. I they were like, no Adidas track pants. Not, not you know, it was very clear. Right. Right. Who they're going after. Oh, yeah. And these were the craziest dress codes. I mean, all types of things. No chains. No, no, no do rags. I mean, it was that kind of stuff going on. Got and you. this was happening in like 2016. Wow. That recent. Okay. That recent. So when I was writing about this stuff, everyone was like, yo, what's going on? Like, what? What? Not in the gay clubs. I'm like, yeah. They didn't want us there either. And imagine that being black and gay. Like you already got to, you know, the hip hop clubs, the clubs in your hood don't want you. Mm-hmm. And then you come down to the neighborhood and they don't want you. And that was hard seeing that. I can only imagine. You know, where do you go? <laughs> <laughs> for real, for real. And so I know you said, I know that some there was a, some changes. So there were some uh, activist groups that got behind you and your writing and sort of started moving forward. What changes sort of came out of that? Well, we, we saw laws change. Um, there is a new, there was a law that got inspired that was with the Fair, Pro, the Fair Practice Ordinance, which is basically the city's non-discrimination, you know, decree. Mm-hmm. They updated it with a stipulation that basically was like any, commercial properties, basically bars, places like that, that were found to be discriminating um, people based on race, sexual orientation, all that could lose their license. In the past, they would get slapped with a fine. The stipulation became, if you're doing this, you could lose your whole license. You're about to lose your job, basically. And did that, so I'm I'm assuming that that may not have changed the hearts and minds, but changed what was happening. Exactly. I mean, you put fear in people. Like, Mm -hmm. you know how this goes. You know, we just don't get racial harmony without no fear. You got to put the, you know, people just don't know how to get right without having to get right, you know? Yeah. So that was that. Like, that law happened. Um, the, the the pride flag got, you know, Philadelphia pride flag became a thing, which is the flag that has the black and brown stripes at the top yep. of mm-hmm. the flag. That became a symbol that now is being used all over the world. And, you know, other people like to stay claim to it, but it was inspired by what took place in the reporting that I did, the activism that took place. I mean, there was a lot of protests, man. Like there was a group called the Black and Brown Workers, uh, the Black and Brown Workers Coalition, but now um, cooperative. Um, they're not a co-op now, the Black and Brown Workers Cooperative. Yeah, they 
basically um, it was a black and brown workers collective, and now it's a black and brown workers cooperative. Mm-hmm. And there, like, was this this, this intersectional black queer um, grassroots organizing group that does a lot of organizing around labor and social justice um, in the community in Philadelphia. There, there, many of them are local grown, non-binary, trans, black and brown folk that was out there doing direct actions, putting up lists of demands demanding for change in that in that arena and then continue to take that work into the healthcare spaces in the LGBTQ community because let's be very clear the gay racism was not just a movement addressing the racism at the bars and nightclubs but also those community centers those um healthcare centers like it got deep gotcha we saw a lot of resignations some people lost their jobs some businesses got shut down or got got to close down due to bad business it was a revolution and I was at the forefront of covering a lot of that stuff. And I won some national awards. Um, and it was a breakthrough moment for my career in journalism. Mm-hmm. for sure. And so is that the kind of action that you think is needed in, in overall queer communities and even, you know, other minority communities as well is, it's that sort of grassroots boots on the ground. Let's start calling people out for what's going on. Absolutely. Um, and <laughs> what I got to remind our people is that that was the legacy of how we got the major changes done 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. If you think that we can't, that the real re- revolution is always going to require boots on the ground. Right. It's not the only action, but it is a part of the action. You got to have boots on the ground. You have to have boots in the legislative room. You have to have boots. In the newsroom, you got to have boots in all the rooms. Right. Everybody's got to have a part to play. You get play at the ballot if you want. Voting is fine. Go vote. But it, voting is not the only fix. I think the problem I've seen in this current era is that a lot of people want to create a magic bullet. They want only one type of response. There has to be multiple ways to, start, to carve that turkey. And for some reason, people are just so scared to go and hit the streets. No, the streets need to be hit. Like, that's one aspect of it. But what I want to be clear about is that I want people to understand that the streets can be hit, but I need people that got checks, money, resources. You need to be doing more than just protesting. When I see these celebrities going to these protests, I don't care about you tweeting that. Get your ass into the bank and go cash a check and support these local grassroots organizations. Don't give your money to Sean King, okay? But give your money... To local people that's doing the real work, if you care, right? Mm-hmm. Put your money where your mouth is. Disrupt this this classist system. There's a lot of these activists that want to go to concerts and with a guitar and John Legend it. Mm-hmm. Be in boardrooms. George John Legend goes to, is in on boards. He's you know gives money. He does be do more than just go to protest. I think some of these people, you know, like I said, John Legend, someone who does multitudes, right? Right. Be someone that's going to be in boardrooms. Elevate and amplify. Give money. Give your money up if you're rich. Rich people surrender your wealth. People who are are, are local in the community continue to be, continue to live and show up. Go to town hall meetings, speak out, you know, vote, but also show up and show out and give these people, elected officials, hell. And these elected officials do the job for right. real, for real. Do the real work or otherwise expect to get a challenger, expect to lose your seat 
expect not to keep any of the things that you promised in your campaign that you was going to give that you didn't. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Ernest. Um, oh, yeah. Is there anything you want to leave, any message you want to give to people or to youth or anyone um, surrounding, you know, black queer issues or queer issues overall? Um, you know, well, first of all, before I let you go, where can people reach you if, uh, if they want to talk with you more? Yeah, ErnestOwens.com. I'm on Twitter. Google me. I'm not hard to find, actually. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm all on the Internet. I'm all on the Web. Okay. Um, people could definitely find me. Um, and my last thoughts are just like everybody has a part to play. And I would just say, you know, I people say act your age, act your wage, you know, act to engage. Do the work. Act to engage. I love that. Act, act to engage, you know, because everybody thinks that it's just one little thing. And I've been having these conversations a lot with people, but we all have different levels of what we can give. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask the poorest and the most marginalized and the most broken um, to have to do three times the amount of labor that folks that I'm a little bit more privileged should do. I am constantly thinking about the ways that I need to do more and contribute with the resources, the influence that I have. I want everybody to be thinking a little bit more about that in their own life. Because if we try to do the whole, everybody go to a protest, everybody sign the petition, we're never going to really break out of incremental change. We need immediate change, not incremental change, immediate change. And that can only happen if everybody pays their fair share in labor and work um, that they can do. So I want people to act to engage. I love that. I love that. It's a great ending point. So Ernest, thank you so much for your time. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.